The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show. My co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue the spring 2017 TV season with the penultimate episode of The Walking Dead, the season finale of Star Wars Rebels, and a review of Amazon's Sneaky Pete in the streaming section. But before all of that, we're going to kick everything off with the News with Nico section. Fargo Season 3 trailer, Blood, Snow, and Dueling Oon McGregor's. The official trailer for Season 3 of FX parka-clad crime anthology, debuting Wednesday, April 19th at 10.9 Central, was just released, and it gives us a great look at Oon McGregor's dual roles as a pair of polar opposite brothers, Emmett, the tuxedo-clad parking lot king of Minnesota, and Ray, the balding parole officer who resents his brother's success. Here, Ray comes to his brothers begging for a little help. You still owe me from what happened when we were kids. But Emmett's reluctant to open his wallet again. Braindead's Mary Elizabeth Winstead co-stars as Ray's girlfriend, Nikki Swango, who encourages him to get revenge. You're twice the man your brother is. So Ray turns to stoned accomplice Maurice, played by Halt and Catchfire's Scoot McNary, and tells him, I've got a place that needs a little Robin. And of course, things go wrong. This is Fargo, after all. So we catch glimpses of a nasty car wreck and someone beating the hell out of someone else with a blunt instrument. That brings in police chief Gloria Burgle, played by the leftover Carrie Coon, who questions a local grocer about a suspicious purchase of a case of frozen orange juice concentrate. God, this looks great. I can't wait for April 19th. Westworld upgrades Tallulah Riley to series regular for season two. Tallulah Riley, who plays host Angela on the HBO sci-fi drama, has been promoted to series regular status for the show's sophomore season. Fans remember Angela as the gorgeous host who welcomed William to the park in season one's second episode. She was later revealed to be a follower of the cult leader Wyatt, and her appearance was a big hint that, spoiler alert, William and Ed Harris's Man in Black were actually the same person, a theory that I proposed in, I think the end of the second episode. Anyway, HBO renewed Westworld for a 10-episode second season back in November, but hold on to your horses. It's not expected to return until sometime in 2018. That can't come soon enough for me. Orphan Black final season images and synopsis released. Everything ends. Even if your biology has been cloned and reborn as new life generations beyond your mortal existence. Such is the case of Orphan Black, BBC America's breakout sci-fi thriller set to conclude with its fifth season this summer. Starring Emmy Award winner Tatiana Maslany. Ah, I love saying that. Emmy Award winner. The series has spent years exciting us with crazy science and hyperactive hijinks. Discover the real mystery surrounding the Sesterhood like no other, which has kept us coming up with crackpot theories weekend 
in and week out while reviewing this series. So it's hard to imagine a world without Sarah, Allison, Helena, Cosima, Rachel, Felix, Kira, Mrs. S, and all the rest. But it's now at an end. But before that, we have 10 episodes of amazing content to look forward to. This season, the walls close in on Sarah when nearly all her sisters and their allies are brought to heal by Rachel. Even more harrowing is that her daughter Kira has joined them. With the threat of Neolution having carte blanche access to clone biology, Sarah is desperate to gain control, but realizes she must change tactics to pursue a long game. Protecting both her families and the hosts of clones she's yet to meet, Sarah and those still fighting the fight will uncover the missing pieces of the insidious conspiracy and finally learn the story behind their origin. Despite the great risk, the fight of her life will either set her and her sisters free or see them meet their end. The best line in that has to be the host of clones she's yet to meet. Is Maslani going to be giving us even more sisters this year? With all the conspiracies and theories still out there, you should probably bet on it. I'll be sad when this series ends, but much like when Fringe ended, it is going to be an amazing final season. I can't wait. David Boreanaz in, Jim Caviezel out as star of CBS's Navy SEAL drama. In an 11th hour recast, Bones vet David Boreanaz has replaced person of interest's Jim Caviezel as the star of CBS's Navy SEAL drama pilot that I mentioned in last week's News with Nico. Caviezel left the project earlier this week due to creative differences. Boreanaz recently wrapped his 12-season run on Fox's Bones. The show's series finale airs next Tuesday. Written by Justified alum Ben Cavell, the potential series follows the lives of the elite Navy SEALs as they train, plan, and execute the most dangerous high-stakes missions our country can ask. Boreanaz will play Jason, the respected, committed leader of the assault team who's been through over a dozen deployments with scars inside and out. This actually surprises me, and... I like David Boreanaz, and I really like Jim Caviezel, so I, I think it's still going to be a good series, but I, I think I might have liked it a little bit better with Caviezel, but we'll see. I think Boreanaz will give us a good portrayal of the character, and we don't even know if it's going to get picked up. Fear the Walking Dead showrunner to step down after season three. Fear the Walking Dead is undergoing a changing of the guard. David Erickson, the current showrunner of AMC's zombie spinoff, will step down from that position following the upcoming season three. Erickson will remain as an executive producer on the series and will develop other projects for AMC Studios under a new overall deal. Erickson served as showrunner for the first two seasons of Fear, which hasn't achieved the rating success of its predecessor, The Walking Dead. It debuted to more than 10 million viewers in August of 2015, but sank to around 3 million for October's season 2 finale. AMC renewed it for a 16 episode season 3 last April. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not. The original Walking Dead has gone through two showrunner changes and has not been hurt by that, and some would say it has actually been greatly improved. We will see for Fear of the Walking Dead. The Big Bang Theory renewed for two more seasons. TV's highest rated comedy, The Big Bang Theory, has been renewed for two more seasons, CBS and Warner Brothers announced on Monday. The renewal will bring its season count to 12 and ensure that Sheldon, Leonard, and the rest of the gang are on your TVs into 2019. The stars of the show, which is currently in its 10th season, agreed to a new deal with production company Warner Brothers, paving the way for a renewal by CBS. The five principal cast members, Jim Parsons, Johnny Galecki, Kaylee Kuoko, Simon Helberg, and Kunal Nayar, will 
will be paid equally for the length of this contract, around 900000 per episode. They're actually taking a pay cut to create room in the budget for Mayim Bialik and Melissa Rauch to get substantial raises in their renewal. Bialik and Rauch have not yet signed new contracts, according to The Hollywood Reporter, but negotiations are reportedly nearing a successful close. Also, Sheldon, a spinoff focused on Sheldon's childhood, was greenlit last week, but to be honest, does not look all that great to me. I'm about done with this series anyway, and was hoping that it would wrap at the end of this season, but apparently it will continue for at least two more years. We'll see if it gets any better or continues its slow descent into mediocrity and possibly even below. Ashley Judd joins Epic's Berlin Station. Ashley Judd is entering the spy game as a series regular on season two of Epic's original drama Berlin Station. Judd will play B.B. Yates, Berlin's disarming new chief of station, who is nicknamed the Station Whisperer because she shores up CIA stations in moral and corporate disrepair. Judd, whose recent TV credits include ABC's The Missing and Showtime's upcoming Twin Peaks Revival, joins recent Berlin Station cast edition Kiki Palmer from Scream Queens. Remember, I reviewed the first season of Epic's original drama Berlin Station a few weeks ago in the streaming section and highly recommended it. I suggest if this Ashley Judd news interests you that you go back and watch the first season before the second season comes out sometime in late 2017 or early 2018. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, with that, we're going to jump right into the penultimate episode of Walking Dead's seventh season with the episode entitled Something They Need. A group of Alexandrians embark on a journey to a distant community, and one group member must make a heartbreaking decision. The Walking Dead is quickly coming up on that all-out war story arc that I've been discussing since the mid-season premiere, and while all of Season 7B has been setting up the chessboard to make that happen, this week's episode made some of the final moves necessary before the fights start in earnest in next week's finale. Now, as I was looking at Twitter and Facebook and a lot of the TV websites that I frequently read and, and look at throughout the week after last night's episode, virtually everywhere you look at after this episode wanted to talk and had opinions on the one scene from this week's episode that I really didn't want to or feel comfortable discussing. But unfortunately, since it was one of the more talked about and discussed scenes of the week, I felt I really probably should weigh in. And that's the very early scene in the episode where we find Sasha in one of those cells, maybe even the same one that Daryl spent so much time in earlier this season, having somehow survived her one-woman assault on the sanctuary and being captured virtually unharmed. One of Negan's previously nameless goons, David, later nicknamed Rapey Davy, snuck into Sasha's prison cell. He told the terrified and dehydrated Sasha he'd give her water in exchange for sex, and when she told him to go to hell with that pretty badass headbutt, he tore off her shirt and started to unbuckle his belt. It's become a trope in contemporary horror that any time a character is introduced who's a creepy perv to one of the female protagonists, it's a build-up to her eventually violently killing at the climax. So most viewers who have not read the comics would have been forgiven if they expected to see Sasha get the upper hand and kill him where he stood. Rather, at this point, Negan came in and that same audience, the segment of the audience not familiar with Kirk Kirkman's source material, was likely meant to assume that the series 
series Biggest Bad Yet would encourage David's assault, possibly even watching it. Instead, Negan brutally stabbed him in the neck, letting Sasha know that rape was against the rules because we're not monsters. In fact, a keen observer and viewer would have learned this when we were first introduced to the sanctuary as one of Negan's rules when he was explaining them to Carl. So I can't really understand the complaint that this scene truly felt out of nowhere when Sasha's would-be sexual assailant in her sanctuary cell, Rapey Davy, bought it from a stab in the neck by Negan. When I saw him rip Sasha's shirt and start messing with his pants, I even said to the people I was watching the episode with, oh, he's dead. Negan's going to kill him or at least hot iron him for this. And I can't help but suspect Negan may have even sent old Rapey Davy in there himself since he knew what was likely to happen. And if he allowed it to happen, he could make himself look better to Sasha, which would make him just as monstrous as ever. Because the problem, of course, with all of this is that Negan and his saviors are monsters. And even worse, Negan rapes all the women he forces to marry him through coercion. He forces them to marry him in exchange for their husbands, mothers, or other family members' lives. And what makes it even worse is that he believes he's any better than than guys like Rapey Davy. His whole spiel this season has been dominating and emasculating his male enemies and making glorified sex dolls out of the pretty women in his orbit. So hearing him decry sexual assault as monstrous felt hollow and more than a little bit absurd. The question now becomes whether the show realizes it has a rape-hating rapist as its big bad or the writers think that Negan is not a rapist himself. This series has a very spotty relationship with sexual assault and at times have decided to drop entire sequences from the source material to avoid them and yet can't seem to completely shy away from the topic nor get the seriousness or tone of these scenes correct. It is a terrible topic to portray, discuss, and as a viewer, I don't particularly need this series to continue to attempt to address this aspect of the post-apocalyptic world. But if they're going to continue to address it, they need to do better. And the aftermath of sexual assault, or even attempted sexual assault, needs to be addressed and not merely glossed over. It is a terrible, life-altering crime that can't be glossed over or walked away from without serious emotional trauma and need for recovery. The work they did with Maggie and Glenn following the sexual humiliation scene with the governor was the best this series has ever done dealing with sexual assault and sexual crimes. But the scene with Rick, Michonne, and Carl where Carl was almost raped by a gang of guys on the road to Sanctuary was never even addressed beyond that scene. Personally, with how poorly this series deals with this subject matter, maybe they should do more to avoid it rather than make it a focus of an episode or a character's story. Anyway, let's move on. We're going to move on to the rest of the episode and discuss this week's long in the works but not exactly long awaited return to Oceanside, the all-female colony that Tara discovered way back in episode 6. It went down pretty simple and pretty much exactly how I suggested that I thought it was going to go down, except I thought there were was going to have to be a few unfortunate and unnecessary deaths. Essentially, the Alexandrians wanted the guns, Oceanside didn't want to give them up, and there was a skirmish that helped Oceanside realize they can trust Alexandria, and so they let them borrow the guns for the war. Surprisingly, nobody had to die, except for a herd of really cool and gross-looking barnacled walkers. Oceanside is mostly supportive, but they aren't joining the fight yet anyway. I c- imagine Cindy and some of her friends will join the fight eventually, while Natanya will undoubtedly cause some more trouble somehow. 
There are unresolved issues, of course, between the younger soldier and her grandmother that will have to be dealt with at some point, and I suppose we may as well see that. I'm not a huge fan of the Oceanside story thus far. It would need quite a bit of work. I'm not entirely sure I'd enjoy watching to make it work like the Kingdom, the Hilltop, and even the Junkyard Gang have worked this season. There are a few potentially good characters in the group, like the two women that Daryl and the rest of the group had to restrain before Rick let them go to fight the walkers. But I'm not a fan of the whole Natanya and Cindy dynamic, or the Natanya character in general. I did like the way they quote-unquote attacked Oceanside, with Tara breaking in and trying to get them to give up their guns peacefully before Rick had to take them by force. They didn't agree, so Rick and the gang stormed the arsenal. There was that standoff between the Alexandrians and Natanya, who was holding Tara hostage after getting the upper hand, until that awesome swarm of barnacle-covered walkers, drawn by the sound of the dynamite the Alexandrians set off, showed up. So the Alexandrians and the Oceansides teamed up to neutralize that threat, and I liked that they used what should be the real threat in this world, the walkers, to solidify the union between these communities. Natanya was of course pissed, but it appears that no one's listening to her anymore. Not enough Oceansiders were on board to join the fight, but enough were to let the Alexandrians borrow their guns and fight for them. Although I think they should have saved that dynamite for when they actually attacked the sanctuary, but what do I know? The third story at Hilltop was that Gregory is the Walking Dead slimiest villain. Negan may be more dangerous, but Gregory poses a threat to Maggie and the other Alexandrians because of his rat-like willingness to do anything to protect himself. Gregory has lasted so long in this post-apocalyptic world by currying favor with the right people and always looking out for number one. And now he doesn't want Maggie at Hilltop anymore, but she's planning to be there for as long as that blueberry bush is producing, which could be at least 40 years. He went to Maggie, who's been living at Hilltop since Glenn's death and training the somewhat soft farming community into a fighting force, and and said he'd like to get on the same page with her. Of course, as soon as she turned her back, he considered stabbing her. Just then, a walker appeared, and he was too scared to take care of it, having never killed one before, and let pregnant Maggie handle it for him. Then she saved his life when a second walker got the best of him and knocked him to the ground. After that, he'd had enough of Maggie and decided to take Negan's second-in-command, Simon, up on his offer to come and see him at Savior HQ if he needed help taking care of any problem. Gregory has wanted to snitch on Maggie, who's not supposed to be at Hilltop for a long time, and now he's going to do it. Gregory is that over-the-top mustache-twirling type of bad guy, and Xander Berkeley has been having a lot of fun playing him as such. When he was offered the part, the character description was of an irredeemable shitheel, a type Berkeley has played so many times in his lengthy career that he told showrunner Scott Gimple that he wasn't really interested unless he could find a way to add something fresh to the character. And Berkeley thinks Gregory may have run a car dealership in his past, which gave him the ability to sell himself into getting a position of leadership and keeping things managed and running on time. Gregory thinks himself as a great man despite the evidence to the contrary. Since we know from interviews that Berkeley and his Gregory character will be back for next season, whatever he does next week to kick off the war won't get him immediately killed in the finale. And the final scene of the episode confirmed a theory many of us had last week that the crossbow-wielding shadow that Rosita saw at the end of the episode was indeed Dwight, and appears he wants to switch sides. This can only be signaling that big things are coming for everyone's favorite Daryl wannabe. People were understandably not too thrilled to see him given his past, especially Daryl, who had to be held back when he blew up in a fit of rage. Let's see, Dwight killed Denise, pointed a crossbow in Daryl's face, stood by Negan as he went back-to-back dingers on Abraham 
Abraham and Glenn's heads. He's even shot Daryl and much more as Negan's right-hand man. So what is going through Dwight's head that he would think about going to Alexandria and that that could possibly be a good idea? The suspicious person might think that Dwight's up to no good. Maybe he's pulling off a con and infiltrating Rip's group from the inside in order to pass information back to Negan. Maybe he's going to get in their good graces and then slaughter them all while they're asleep. But I think now that Sherry has left, he has no reason to stay with the Sabres. She was his only reason for being there, his only reason for going back. Now, I believe he feels the only way to keep her safe is to kill Negan, and Rick and his group are the only ones strong enough and daring enough to do it. He knows that if Sherry is to stay safe and free, Negan has to be dead. Thus, I think his betrayal is legit. I mean, Dwight is pretty sick of Negan's shit, as we saw in the Dwight-centric episode Hostiles and Calamities, which laid out Dwight's wavering allegiance to Master Negan due to their rocky relationship regarding Dwight's ex, Sherry. This is consistent with the comic story and how that goes so it makes a lot of sense. Negan is the most difficult foe that Rick has ever gone up against, so it's going to take everyone chipping in to take him and the saviors down. And if Dwight can provide a little help, Rick should probably take it. Some people have suggested that next week in the finale, we might see a prisoner exchange of Dwight for an already zombified Sasha, and I could see that playing out. But if it does, I think Dwight will now be acting as an inside man for Alexandria. We know that this is Walking Dead, and people die in the premieres and finales. So in next week's big season finale, who do you think dies? My tentative money is on Eugene, but since Chandler Riggs has been talking about potentially leaving the show to attend university... Could we see Negan's crew kill Carl? It's just a thought. Join me next week for Walking Dead's finale review, and I'd love to hear from all of you about your thoughts on the finale and on the season as a whole. Now I'm going to move on to the two-part season finale of Season 3 of Star Wars Rebels, with the two-part episode entitled Zero Hour Part 1 and 2. In the final preparations for their attack on Lothal, Phoenix Squadron's plans are disrupted when Grand Admiral Thrawn discovers their location. In Part 2, trapped on Adalon with the Rebel base under siege, Hera and Kanan fight to keep the squadron alive as Ezra attempts to rally help from an unexpected source. This was an amazing two-part season finale that gave us just about everything we wanted to see this season. This episode kicked off when Grand Admiral Thrawn discovered Agent Callus's fulcrum secret, catching him in the act, and used Callus's carelessness to pinpoint the Phoenix Squadron's secret base on Adelon. The battle between Callus and Thrawn was great, and despite Thrawn's prevailing in the end, I thought Callus held his own against the Chiss tactician much better than I would have initially thought. Then Thrawn attacked Adelon in a battle that played out with similar beats to that of the Battle of Hoth. The rebels had almost no warning and had to fight to get out of the base and off the surface in ships, and the Empire dealt a serious blow to the rebellion, but didn't quite accomplish their primary goal. In this case, Thrawn was confident he'd capture the ghost crew and learn all the necessary information from them. He thought it would be the end of the rebellion, and while he could claim a win in the category of numbers and losses to the rebellion, I see the battle rather as a draw because the primary objective wasn't achieved. However, I imagine in Thrawn's mind, with his careful orchestration and foresight, he sees what happened on Adalon as a loss, which will be interesting in Season 4 and with how the Emperor will see it. Happily, at least for now, pending the Emperor's feelings on the matter, we 
still have a very much alive Thrawn to continue to loom as a threat to the Rebellion next season. He is bigger than a single season villain in my mind and all of the expanded universes fans' minds, and I know he'll examine all the information from the battle at Chopper Base to come back even stronger and scarier next season. As for the Rebels, they lost Commander Sato and so much more. While I would have been okay, well, not really okay, but I would have understood losing a member of the Ghost team, it wasn't entirely necessary to communicate the stakes in this episode, so in the end, I'm glad that it didn't happen because more than likely, Rex would have been the one that we lost. I want Season 4 to put us on a path straight into Rogue One. That looks like where we're headed, but what else is there to explore in the two years between now and then? I'm skeptical about how many more small skirmishes the Rebels will find themselves in. On the other hand, look at how much territory Star Wars The Clone Wars covered in the three years between Episode 2 and 3. Here are the stories I really want to see addressed in Season 4. The Mandalorian Civil War, what happens to Ezra and Kanan, how and when Hera gets promoted to the rank of General, a conclusion to the Ahsoka story, and everything Thrawn. Without too many other longer threads still dangling, I'm fine with the thought of Rebels taking a small jump forward in time and wrapping the series with next season. This episode was amazing, and I think it was important to show the loss as we head into Season 4 and getting closer to Rogue One. The Battle of Scarif becomes even more of a rally point victory when you've watched how the Rebels have suffered and then picked themselves up to continue fighting. As far as I can tell, Scarif is the first large-scale attack, so we can't see anything of that scale here on Rebels before then. I mean, think about this. At the beginning of this episode, the Ghost crew was poised to launch an attack on the Imperials established on Lothal, but Tarkin expressed disbelief at even the notion that that was possible. But remember how he did the same thing in Rogue One. The Rebel Alliance had been an official thing for a couple years at that point, but Tarkin wasn't worried. Part of his scorn is likely arrogance and because he knows the might of the Empire. But he also has no historical proof of the Rebel Alliance being capable of coordinating a major battle. Thus, for continuity's sake, this series cannot have them have major Rebel battles with the Empire or it ruins that continuity. Thrawn's ambush of Chopper Base not only threw a wrench into the Rebels' attack plans and prevented them from regrouping. The Empire inflicted damage to personnel, ships, and resources, and since we've spent much of the last two seasons of Star Wars Rebels watching the Ghost crew and Phoenix Squadron cobble together equipment whenever and wherever they can, they've scraped and scrapped for everything they've, they had, and now it's almost all gone. They can't just bounce back for any sort of battle in the immediate future. This week's finale ended with our Rebels on their way to Yavin, and I'm looking forward to seeing how our Rebel family we've come to know and love, or at least in Ezra's case, tolerate over the last couple years, will fit in at Yavin. We know at least Hera and Chopper make it until the Battle of Scarif, but who else will remain standing? Which established characters are they going to run into next season? I'm really hoping for a chance to see Cassian and K2SO, but there has been no hints of that yet. Uh, I, I know this this episode just finished, but I can't wait for season four. But let's be honest, I, I can't ever wait <laughs> for more Star Wars. That's why I've read over a hundred Star Wars novels, comic books, and other media. Anyway, moving on. No Supernatural this week as it's been on its second of two-week hiatus and we'll be back next week. So we'll skip to the streaming section and discuss the Amazon series Sneaky Pete and its 10 episode first season. After being released from prison, a con man hides from debtors by assuming his cellmate's identity and lands a job with his faux family's bail bond business.
Sneaky Pete, almost indicative of its title, took a very interesting path to get to our screens. Created and written by Brian Cranston and house creator David Shore, it was originally written to be a bounty hunter-style procedural for CBS, which you can actually feel in the very first episode, even with the reshoots and additions that took place. Sneaky Pete then got shopped to Amazon after CBS passed on it, who wanted a serialized drama focusing on cons and swindles. Then David Shore left the series as showrunner after making the pilot and and thus Cranston decided to star on the series as the main antagonist, which originally his character was assumed to be an occasional recurring part after his appearance in the pilot, but wound up being a full supporting role because he's in nearly every episode, at which time also justified creator Graham Yost entered the picture as the new showrunner. And Yost notably brought with him the justified vibe and all the Elmore Leonard goodness that goes with it. And to be honest, it is probably why I love this series because of the changes and themes that Yost added to the series. Notably, though, there's not a full-blown tonal change after the pilot episode, but you do notice the shift into a much more character-focused, serialized show that almost instantly drops not only the Fugitive of the Week premise, but also the will-they-won't-they dynamic between Giovanni Ribisi's Marius and Marin Ireland's Julia. In fact, the second episode almost reintroduces the series by being chock-full of Brian Cranston-filled flashbacks explaining how Marius came to be in the predicament he's in. The pilot was already fun, but the work done in the second episode to truly flesh out the show's world, along with some great speeches from Cranston's Big Bad character, really helped Sneaky Pete turn a big corner and transform into some very enjoyable pulp. So what exactly is this series about? The premise, for those who missed the pilot episode when it became available on Amazon back in August of 2015, involves a con artist, Marius, played by Giovanni Ribisi, on the run from a crime boss, Vince, played by Cranston. Marius, having been released Released from prison after three years, decides to assume the identity of his oversharing cellmate Pete and hide out on Pete's old family farm, pretending to be the cousin no one's seen in 20 years. Complicating matters, of course, is the fact that Marius owes Vince a hundred grand, and Vince is holding his brother Eddie prisoner until he gets it. And he makes it clear Eddie will be hurt in a very specific way if, if certain deadlines aren't met. Enter the dysfunctional Bernhardt family, the poor clan duped into believing that Marius is their all-grown-up cousin Pete. They may or may not have have the money Eddie needs, but with them comes a whole other web of lies and trickery. So secrets build up, trust gets betrayed, and emotional turmoil looms large as Marius finds himself fitting in with the Bernhardts more effortlessly than he assumed, simply because they're a bunch of sneaky Pete's just like he is. A term that actually comes from Cranston's real life and describes people he grew up with, meaning someone who's looking for cheats and shortcuts. Those who miss the colorful scheming antics of TNT's leverage will most certainly get their con game fill with Sneaky Pete, a series that artfully runs several cons at once. There's barely a free moment where Marius isn't lying in some manner in order to obtain his goal. Whether that end game involves swiping the cash from the Bernhardts, getting some measure of revenge on Vince, or simply trying to not get caught in one of his lies. But the big con is the prize in this series. From the very first episode, it's clear that Marius is planning something huge and so that element drives you through the show, even when obstacle after obstacle is put in his and our path.
Sneaky Pete, because of the ample amount of one-step-forward, two-step-back obstacles that litter the road between the pilot and the season finale, can frustrate some viewers who don't naturally enjoy the con or thriller genre. Though, in this instance, the obstacles come because of how smart each character is, not because of boneheaded decisions. It's rare that anyone can truly be fooled by anyone else here in this series, because just about every character is shrewd and clever. If Marius isn't dealing with fellow professional crooks and con artists, he's actively trying trying to dupe a family who runs a bail bonds business and has heard virtually every lie in the book. Occasionally, the series can get bogged down in moving parts. Sometimes it's even hard to keep track of Marius's lies, and just when it seems like he's solved one problem, six more seem to spring up. But that's when the performances and writing really help sell this story. There are a ton of juicy, wonderful, flawed characters here, ranging from the recently redeemed to the eternally creepy. There's Marius's world of city schemers featuring True Blood's Carolina Wydra, Roseanne's Michael O'Keefe, the Americans' Allison Wright, and more. And then there's the Bridgeport, Connecticut crew of the Bernhards and Bail Bonds-related players that features Margot Martindale, Peter Garrity, the aforementioned Marin Ireland, Shane McRae, and Jacob Pitts, a justified alum like Martindale herself. You can tell that every actor is relishing their role and really digging into the character, which shows in their amazing performances. Even when Sneaky Pete is gruesome, there's still a callousness to that chaos. It feels so much like justified, though perhaps not as cool as almost everyone here is the type of person that would be used to sort of salt and pepper Raylan Givens' world. It's like a show made up of scheming side characters, one that really delves into their lives and shows you how fully formed a scoundrel can be. Don't get attached is the credo of the con game, and that's almost the rule as the viewer, too, in this series. Though like Marius slash Pete, the marks start to grow on you, and you find yourself torn between the two worlds, just like our main character. And it's worth bringing up, again, if you're a Brian Cranston fan, then you're really going to dig his monologuing bad guy role here. On the surface, there's not much to the Vince character, but Cranston instantly finds a depth to him and instills him with a confidence and clarity that makes you want to root for him against all of the characters the show tells us are the protagonists. You really love this bad guy. Sneaky Pete is a fun shell game style show that keeps you intrigued and guessing. It's filled with smart writing, believably unique characters, and some awesome interlocking cons. It also sets up an amazing and believable story hook for season two that ensures we'll get to spend another season with many of our season one favorite characters. Unlike last week's Medici's Masters of Florence, I can wholeheartedly recommend Sneaky Pete, and that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Alright, and that's going to be my review for Sneaky Pete. On next week's episode, we'll continue with the spring 2017 TV season with a review of the season finale of Walking Dead, an episode of Supernatural from Michael and Tim as that returns from its short hiatus, and possibly another streaming recommendation along with more news with Nico. DC Nation continues with episodes of Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends, and soon Gotham will be returning from its three-month hiatus, so make sure to join us for that. Also be sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universes. But for now and much of the season, let's roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own 
own, individual programs. Get the iTunes Store. Get Google Play Store. Guys, for the podcast shows, Cutter Network, we have the DC Nation podcast. Located at dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com. Which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast. Located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airwaves podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory, God the Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, got the mixed radio station, Code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, and the Windows Marketplace, got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing, email us at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at acrosstheairways. There's no thought in there. It's just acrosstheairways. Join our circle at Google+, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, that's 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Get the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read on the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wukim, Joshua Mercury, James Hafel, Steve Nostro, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Reistick, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and thanks for joining us for another episode of ATA, covering Walking Dead, Star Wars, Rebels, and the new streaming section. See ya! Now return to our regularly scheduled program.